0: Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and Looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, "Get behind me, Satan!" He said, "You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but the mer- merely human concerns. Take up the, uh, take up your oh, merely human concerns." Then, th- then he called to the crowd to. To him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What, what, it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet for, uh, forfeit their soul, or who can or what can anyone give in exchange for this soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when they come to the Father's glory and with holy angels.
1: evening, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing you the Word this evening. We're actually going through a huge chunk of text. That's a little bit of it. Um, And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to keep going on our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your Word, and we pray that you open our hearts tonight to what you have to say to us, and open up your Word to our hearts. And we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you all know, we are racing through the Gospel of Mark, and because we're doing it at pace, that means we're kind of operating on two levels as we go through it. We're, uh, we're gliding over the text at a distance, we're picking out the main points and encouraging each other to read it uh, and to dwell on it intentionally in our own devotional time, and also picking out some of those elements in detail and trying to expose them at a greater depth, a kind of a higher resolution examination. This week, we're moving from Chapter 8, verse 31, which is where we started in that reading, all the way to the end of chapter 9, which is about 80 verses. Um, And so, as always, um, the things we fly over at that high level, do make note of in your Bible. Fold the corner of that page or whatever it is you do. Read that more intentionally in your own study time. It is all very valuable. Um, I'll put up a salient verse or two on the screen as we go through. I'll read out the whole passage. Um, But if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, I, of course, encourage you to do so. The NIV divides this whole section we're going through up into about seven sections, and this is them. Um, and Aurora read the first two for us there, and here they are. They include, out of these seven sections in the big chunk we're dealing with right now, um, we have two of Jesus's three prime predictions of his death with the transfiguration in which Jesus is rendered in this astonishing glory, uh, the kind of which we will not see again until the end of days. Um, we have one of the most intense exorcisms in all of Scripture, um, and we have three indispensable teachings of Christ. And so as we glide over these and focus eventually on the way of the cross, that little second category I've put there, please don't hear me saying implicitly that, uh, that those five verses we're going to talk mostly about are the pearl and the rest of the passage is just oyster. Um, it's all pearl, um, but we can only farm one little pearl at a time. So let's move through the chapter in overview step by step. Now, starting with Jesus predicting his death and the apostles Uh, In chapter 3, starting at verse 81 there, that the Son of Man must suffer, he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, killed and rise again. And and Peter quite presumptuously takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. He disagrees with Jesus' prediction of his own fate. Uh, Why the long face, Jesus? Why are you saying all these negative things? You can't die, you're ruining your whole Messiah vibe. Jesus gives his iconic block and counter in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. It's a pretty harsh thing to say to someone. Uh, It's a little rough, but warranted at least because Jesus is the one who dispensed it. Now, sometimes this is read maybe more literalistically than I think we need to. It's possible Satan was actually present there in some capacity, kind of nudging Peter to obstruct Jesus. But it seems more likely that Jesus is using the name of the enemy to shock Peter into re-examining his own presumptions. Jesus is accomplishing God's plan according to to God's wisdom. And human wisdom cannot grapple with that because humans don't possess God's uh, depth of understanding of his creation. They don't have God's wisdom. But we can at least listen and obey. And when Jesus, who has previously uh, spoken and recognized that Jesus is God's Messiah, when he chooses not to accept this difficult teaching, but instead he attempts to correct Jesus, he's attending to his human concerns and expectations rather than God's divine ones. He knows who Jesus is, sort of. He doesn't know the full extent of it and won't until Jesus rises again. But he doesn't understand what it really means to follow Jesus. Not yet. And Jesus will explain in painful detail in the verses that come after. That's the, the way of the cross as it's t- subtitled in the, in the NIV. And I like that title for it. We'll come back and, and look at that one in detail after we finish our overview. But for now, we're going to jump down to chapter 9, starting at verse 2 He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and the voice came from the cloud, "'This is my son whom I love. Listen to him.' Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, "'Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first?' Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as was written about him. Now in short, six days after predicting his death, Jesus takes these disciples up what's called this high mountain. We don't know specifically what mountain it is. Scripture does not reveal this to us. It's probably in Judea. They ascend the mountain, Christ is transfigured, he becomes this dazzling figure, and Jesus talks to these uh, appearances of these long-gone prophets, Elijah and Moses. And the content of that discussion is not offered to us as much as we would like to hear it. Um, But you can imagine it's some pretty heavy stuff. Two of the most powerful prophets summoned out of time to the side of the Savior to encourage him as he prepares to confront and perform this central act of all of history. And then Peter pipes up with this amusingly dim suggestion, how about we make some tents for you guys? Uh, the gospel actually tells us there, incredibly, that Peter didn't know what to say, um, which is a funny thing to put in there and lend some evidence to the idea that Mark's gospel is written sort of from Peter's account of his travels. And you can kind of imagine Mark maybe interviewing Peter and says, and then I say, well, we're going to build some tents. Mark looks up, why? He uh, didn't know what to say. <laughs> He just sort of blabs that suggestion since they're so terrified at the center of this supernatural event. And the voice of God calls from heaven to listen to the son that God loves. And it's a message that Peter, who has been trying to get a handle on this situation and steer it, he desperately needs to hear. Stop trying to handle this. This is the son of God. Listen to him. And then the mystical encounter vanishes away. And Jesus tells them as they come down the mountain not to talk about the event Uh, He alludes to the fact that John the Baptist has come before him. Uh, The disciples continue to puzzle at what is meant by rise from the dead because they can't accept the literal meaning that Jesus is actually intending to die. That's not an end fit for a king, let alone the son of God. So they don't get it, and they won't get it for some time. Heading on to the next portion from verse 14. When they came together, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. But if you can help us, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So in this next session, we have this amazing uh, casting out of a demon. It's, it's different in kind from a whole lot of other exorcisms in Jesus' ministry there um, because this is a deaf and a mute spirit. This is uh, a spirit that shouldn't be able to hear someone casting it out to simplify the, the law around that. And that's something only someone with the power and authority granted directly from being God can accomplish. Jesus doesn't know magic words, he's just in charge and accomplishes this. The man's brought his son to them. He needs Jesus to cast this spirit out. The disciples have failed. This story we kind of get a full write-up of in this passage, as we've just read. A lot of the times when, it, when spirits are cast out, uh, the Bible just says, and he cast out many spirits, or it'll describe it fairly quickly. This we get a great deal of detail. And it sounds just terrible. Imagine the life this family has lived for however many years they've been raising this child who's been seized upon by this demon and when they bring the boy to jesus the demon recognizes he's out of time immediately begins sort of taking out this petty vengeance on the boy convulses this young man jesus asks the father how long has he been like this a question that can sort of be mistaken for a diagnostic tool but seems to me more about a broken-hearted compassion for this father how long has this been happening how long have you had to cope with this And the father says, since he was a little child. He asked Jesus if it's possible, and Jesus tells him, of course, it's possible, and drives the spirit out, instructs the disciples on the importance of prayer when confronting this kind of evil. All right, and then we move on. Again, you can see the high, sort of low resolution of our examination right now. I really want to recommend you read this stuff in detail, because these are There's no part of the gospel that is not good, but this is some really rich stuff. Um, Starting at verse 30, Jesus predicting his death a second time. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because um, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days... He will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child into his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So they leave that place. They pass through Galilee. Jesus predicts his death again. The text clearly tells us they don't understand. He's told them a lot of times now, but they just can't wrap their heads around the idea that their savior and king has his plan to die. The disciples end up bickering about who will be the most prestigious and highest station, the greatest in the new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And our Lord uses the example of this child, that the kingdom will not be about status and power seeking, but about those that seek to be first, must be last, and a servant of all, and even serving little children. Whoever welcomes a child thus welcomes Jesus, and not only Jesus, but the Father who sent Jesus, it's a call to humility rather than the vanity the disciples were showing off. As you've certainly picked up by now, Mark's pretty harsh on the disciples the entire way through his gospel. Uh, He seems to go out of his way to make sure that we see all the moments that make them seem the most like idiots, Um, which I guess is his prerogative to do so, since Peter was the one who put this together with him. Then John changes the subject. Teacher said, John... We saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So there were other followers of Jesus, not only the the 12 closest to Jesus And they are driving out demons in Jesus' name and they've been trying to stop this. Or rather the disciples, the close inner circle disciples have been trying to stop this, trying to reduce the spread of the franchise um, because they seem to think it was their special privilege to accomplish these things in Jesus' name. They say this is uh, right after Jesus has talked about those who seek to be first, must be a servant of all, and the first shall be last, that imagery. Um, Your prestige hierarchies are not worth anything in the kingdom to come they're obsolete Jesus tells them that if someone's casting out demons in Jesus name they obviously are calling on his authority to do so and if it's worked well then it's not really up to the disciples to question it if they've been given that authority then they're a follower of Christ whoever is not against us is for us Jesus isn't establishing a tiny new priesthood of a few uh, chosen apostles. He's establishing a priesthood of all believers that consists of this mutual service and support of all those who call him Lord. And so finally in this passage, Jesus offers this dire warning immediately after correcting the disciples about shutting down other believers. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them if they had a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. He warns... That anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, referring first to children, but more broadly, to anyone uh, young in their faith, naive and impressionable, who can be caused to stumble by someone else's inexactitude, someone's carelessness with the duty they've been given. Anyone who causes one of these to stumble would be better off being drowned in the sea. It's quite the warning. Our journey back to God consists of helping others to draw closer to obedience and certainly not making it harder for them to do that and furthermore treating ourselves like someone that we care to see saved. And if something in our life or about us is causing us to disobey, we're better off dispensing with that temptation entirely than falling into disobedience and suffering the divine consequences of our sin. Now this isn't quite as simple as if you don't try hard enough not to sin, you'll go to hell. The full context of the gospel reveals the greatest truth, that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. And we live in this obedient gratitude after that fact. But the heart of this message is that being a follower of God and helping others to be followers of God is more prevention than cure from our side. We mustn't cause others or ourselves to fall down on the job. And so that's the overview of our whole passage today. I've done... True justice to none of that because it really benefits a believer to read over the gospel slowly and thoughtfully themselves, but I hope you've seen some thought-provoking things that you'll follow up on. But the broader context of this moment in the gospel narrative is that Jesus is calling people out of ignorance and self-dependence and petty human dreams of station and supremacy and into a future of humility and obedience and forgiveness and even perhaps suffering for the greater glory of God. A call that Jesus himself will exemplify later when he pays the blood price for our redemption on the cross. So let's return to our reading of the passage. To refresh your memory, it goes like this, starting at verse 34 of chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what, is it, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of those standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. I included uh, that extra last verse, which we didn't have in the reading for completion's sake. Uh, Jesus is saying one of two things in that final verse about uh, those who are standing here will not taste death um, before they see the kingdom of God come with power. He's either saying that some of the crowd gathered there are going to die before Jesus comes in power after his resurrection. Judas, for example, at least, will not be around to see that. Or, as I suspect, he's foreshadowing the transfiguration that we already read about here. How three of his disciples would come up and see this incredible, powerful encounter with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the voice of God. The kind of thing that we can expect to see at the end of days, but otherwise only glimpse in moments like that. Whichever is the case, Jesus is warning those near him of what he has been saying this whole time and since he began his ministry. There is no time to waste. The kingdom is here. If you're not going to follow me, don't say you weren't warned. And if you are going to follow me, follow me. And what Jesus is saying is incredibly simple, but not at all easy. This is one of those times when the, when the effortless reality of salvation, the fact that Jesus himself does all the hard work To make forgiveness happen. And the fact that we get that forgiveness and life by God's grace and not by our own efforts. It's a time when that truth meets the sticky, ugly human nature which has its own weaknesses and blind spots and expectations and shortfalls. And however free our grace and salvation is, the fact that it's so hard for some people to accept reminds us that free doesn't mean easy. It's the highlighted sentence from before the disciples must deny themselves take up their cross and follow him That's the most dreadful and challenging here now at a shallow level this can be read as a general encouragement to believers to get up and get on with it and whatever your burden may happen to be whatever you're carrying well mister you just put that on your shoulder and you follow Jesus and he'll be with you every step of the way Whatever your cross might be, you just take that up and you follow. That's not a false message. Each of us will be called to carry various burdens and trials, and each of us is required to follow the Lord in spite of our individual sufferings in that case. And a believer with troubles is better off than a non-believer with troubles. And belief in God is no guarantee that your troubles will be lifted away from you. But this statement comes on the back of Jesus foretelling his own death and Peter not taking it seriously. It's followed by multiple reminders of the fact that Jesus is going to die and then rise again. And injunctions for the disciples not to be seeking a high station, not to be seeking glory, but to be seeking an opportunity to serve selflessly. This warning isn't about how uh, we must look at our circumstances and bear them and follow Jesus. It's about how following Jesus may in fact make your life worse up to and including a grisly death. But ultimately, if you count the cost, it's still the right choice, even from a purely self-serving point of view. Because following Jesus might cost you your life, but it'll gain you eternal life. Now, because we live in the most wonderfully peaceful and free and blessed country that the world has uh, ever produced and in a fair chance that there ever will be, It's unlikely that following Jesus here will cost us our lives. I think that's probably pretty fair to say. Things are pretty good. For the disciples that Jesus was speaking to, taking up the cross meant, they are going to crucify me, and when you stand with me, they will crucify you too. Are you ready to do that? And we know that they weren't ready, not when Jesus was saying this at that time, when Jesus is arrested, he's abandoned by those disciples, even by Peter, as bold as he tries to be. But eventually, every apostle pays the price. If you disregard Judas, who pays a different price. Ten of the 11 apostles end up being killed for their faith as they build the early church. And the 11th John is exiled to a prison island where he dies in isolation as an old man. And throughout all of church history, followers of Jesus being willing to, to lay down their lives for the gospel, have done just that. And they still do it today. Maybe not here, but imagine how different your Sunday might look if you were attending church in Baghdad or Pyongyang or in Sudan. We're unlikely to be called to that level of sacrifice for the gospel here in Australia. Most of us will probably uh, live to an old age without suffering that, but some of us might not. Maybe not to that level anyway, but some of us will be alive by the time we are required to make some sacrifices here. Depending on the way our culture shifts, we might be only a few elections away from seeing things like chaplains being outlawed in state institutions and uh, religious education banned in schools, and that's only a stone's throw away from homeschooling becoming illegal, and that's a world in which raising up your children in the way they should go becomes a jailable offense. That's not unbelievable to happen in our lifetimes. Can we take up that cross and follow him? Because that's the level of commitment that Jesus is asking of us as followers. The disciples are caught up at this time in uh, success and glory, merely human concerns, but Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans and the Herods and place his favorites in charge over the promised land. He came to die. That's what he's leading his people into. And while we're probably not going to be threatened with death for our faith in this country, that's the level of faith that Jesus is asking of us nonetheless. That doesn't mean that we go looking for persecution. It means we prepare for it. We don't act ashamed of our Savior in this easy time because we want to be the kind of believers who wouldn't be ashamed of him if there was a gun to our head. And we strive every day not to think of our faith as a part of our life, but as the thing that defines our life. We're taking up our cross because whether God requires it of us specifically or not, we ought to be capable of sacrificing everything for the Lord who sacrificed everything for us. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your son and for his death on the cross that brought us life everlasting. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see life every day in the light of that incredible blessing, that we would be changed by it, that our devotion would be worthy of it, and that those to whom we witness can see plainly in us that we belong to a God who is willing to die for us, and that our devotion becomes fit for such a Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.